Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. If, uh, if you've ever experienced something like that where you've been in a situation and you've been kind of one-upping somebody else and then it kind of turns on you, you probably feel for Paul right now because Brian was a bit of a smart aleck and uh, he kind of stuck it to Paul, uh, who are also known as Gavin and Bryn. If you've never met Gavin and Bryn, maybe you can catch up with them later on and find out if uh, Bryn really does like his meat that raw. I was reminded as I was watching Paul and Brian in this conversation Several years ago, almost a decade ago now, my wife and I were invited to go to a wedding and I was going to emcee the wedding for a really close friend of mine um, and he was getting married in Northern California. So we flew into San Francisco and then we uh, took a drive up to a little place near Fresno and um, stayed there for the weekend, did the wedding. On the way home, we decided that we'd stop in um, in Sonoma in wine country just north of uh, San Francisco and we did several wine tours and I remember going to a particular vineyard and talking to this, this guy who owned the vineyard and I thought to myself, you know, this is a prime opportunity for me to learn from the experts about wine and so I'd asked him, I was trying to figure out how I could ask him a certain amount of questions and then maybe perhaps later on in life, you know, at a, at a meal or at a you know, restaurant somewhere, I could look like I actually know something about wine. So I asked him, I said, hey, mate, what makes a really great wine? Like, what makes one wine better than another wine? So you see, the comparison is already starting to happen as I'm asking this question. And this guy looks at me dead serious. He looks at me and he says to me, he goes, well, what kind of wine do you like to drink? And so I said, well, I'm a big fan of, you know, like Merlot, and I like Mos- my wife really likes Moscato. And so he says, well, then that's the best kind of wine. And his point was this, that however you like your wine, that is the best kind of wine for you. However you like your meat, whether you think it should be well done or medium rare or whatever, then that's kind of the best type of meat and the best way to cook it for you. Unfortunately, not all of life works that way. In fact, some of you are probably thinking that, you know, if one religion works for you, then you know, another religion doesn't work for you. That's fine. Whatever works best for you. In fact, that's kind of a, I would say, a bit of a prominent thought within the world, within society today, is that whatever works best for you, not just with wine or how your meat is cooked, but in a lot of other areas of life, whatever works best for you, then you just go with that. The problem is that thinking, that philosophy only works to a certain extent. It only goes so far. And then you run into certain things in life and you figure out really quickly, after you've done maybe a little bit of life, you realize, well, that, that doesn't just work for me. It's like for me, I've, I was a phys ed teacher by profession a long time ago. And I got to the point where I just thought, you know what, I can eat whatever I want and I'll still continue to be just as healthy as I was when I was 18 years old. It doesn't work that way though. In fact, as I've been thinking about this whole idea of comparison, I've actually been uh, comparing myself to some other people in my life over the last couple of weeks. And I mentioned to you last week that I struggle with this idea or this disease called comparisonitis. And if you weren't here with us last week, make sure you go to our website, creekside.org.au. You can go to the podcast. You can catch up on last week's uh, message because it really sets up a lot of what we're talking about today. And so if you missed last week, We're going to be talking about a few things this week that you may be wondering, where is that coming from? So I really encourage you to go back and and check it out. Here's what I know to be true, though. Not only do I have the disease of comparisonitis, 
Everyone in this room has a problem with comparison. In fact, if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, I don't have as big an issue of comparison as that guy up on the stage does, you actually, by default, have the issue of comparison. You see what you just did there with the guy up on the stage? We all have this issue, no matter how old we are, how young we are, whether we're a guy, girl, makes no difference. Whether this is your first time today in church ever, and you're kind of hoping that the place doesn't burn down, maybe you're thinking, maybe I shouldn't have come today because the last time I thought about going to church, something bad happened. doesn't matter if you've been going to church your whole life or today is your very first time. We all struggle. It's just a human issue. We all struggle with comparison. And we said last week that because of this issue of comparison, we oftentimes begin to live in the land of what I described as the land of Ur, where we look at other people and we compare ourselves and we see that they're happier, skinnier, funnier, smarter, wealthier, prettier, cooler, or maybe if you're into the whole social media thing, they have more follower than you do. Over the last few months, I've actually been trying to lose a little bit of weight unsuccessfully, just so you know. I've been doing a lot of things. I've been doing this thing called Pilates. Raise your hand if you've ever done Pilates before. You you don't have to be embarrassed, guys, all right? If you're a man in the room, it's okay. Yeah, we've got one over here that's done Pilates before. I just challenge you to go one time before you make fun of anybody that does Pilates, okay? Because I used to make a lot of fun of it until I went and I couldn't walk upstairs the next day, okay? I've been doing a little bit of Pilates and I've also been reading all of the um, things on the back of labels, more so than I ever have before in my life. How many people big fans of Arnott's Biscuits? Raise your hand if you're a big fan of Arnott's Biscuits, yeah? And how many people you'd say, um, like the, uh, the, the fingers, the scotch fingers are your favorite? Raise your hand, yeah? Have we got any Kingston fans in the audience? They're very few and far between, the Kingston people. Some people aren't even aware that they exist, Kingstons. How many people are fans of this one right here, the Monte Carlo? Yeah. This is like the creme de la creme of Arnott's Biscuits. These are my favorites, which, by the way, is a shameless plug for anybody that wants to buy me a packet of Monte Carlo biscuits, all right? But what I've noticed is that on the back of the, um, the packaging, they've got a list of standards on the packaging, based upon like how many calories or kilojoules you should have each day. And then they have a recommended suggested serving size, okay, on the back of this packaging. I didn't realize, but Arnott's are delusional if anybody actually pays attention to the serving size, okay? Raise your hand if you think that the suggested serving size for an Arnott's biscuit from these packaging is three biscuits. Raise your hand. That'd be fairly normal, I would think, wouldn't you? Raise your hand if you think it's two. Raise your hand really quickly. Yeah, a couple of people around here, too. I think that's pretty average as well. In fact, I think that's well-disciplined that you would only take two out of the packaging. I think that's a disciplined serving size. The serving size suggestion on an Arnott's packaging is just one biscuit. Now, who's the idiot at Arnott's that thinks that somebody's only going to have one biscuit? I actually think it might have gone like this in in the Arnott's factory. Hey, guys, check this out. Look what I put on the packaging. (laughs) I put one. To think that anybody would just have one. Isn't that hilarious? What should we do? Well, we've already printed them. Got to send them out now. Just one. When I compare this standard of what they think is a regular serving size with my standard of probably like 
not one, but one sleeve at a time is probably really what you should go with. I'm just appalled that anybody would think that you could only have one. And all of you right now wishing that I had opened this and that I was handing them around. We'll have them afterwards, okay? So make sure that you stick around for morning tea. But the reality is, all of us struggle with this idea of trying to figure out what is the standard by which I should live my life by, whether it's on its biscuits or some other thing in your life, we oftentimes are looking at other people, we're looking at other places, we're looking at other things, trying to figure out, well, what's the standard that I should be living my life by, whether it's your weight or your finances or your parenting or your job. There's all sorts of areas of our lives that we're trying to figure out, well, what's the standard that I should be trying to measure up to? Last week, I asked this simple question. I said, who or what are you comparing yourself to? And who or what says you are fill in the blank enough? Who or what says you are skinny enough, wealthy enough, disciplined enough? Who is it that is essentially the question you could ask is this, who or what is the standard that you're listening to? What is it in this world that you would look to and say, okay, well, the standard for my marriage or the standard for my children or the standard for my job, the standard for my retirement, the standard for anything in the world that you run into in your life, who is it or what is it that you are looking to to set that standard? All of us, I think, have experienced that little voice in the back of our head. I call it the small voice. In the back of our head that somehow is telling us what the standard should be when it comes to a myriad of different areas in our lives. Like for me, when I sit down with a cup of tea and that little voice comes over, you should only have one. I'm like, who's the idiot at Arnott's that got in my head and is telling me I should just have one? But it's not as humorous when that small voice in the back of your head is saying, You're not smart enough. You're not as wealthy as other people. Your kids don't perform the way that other kids perform. See, all of us have got this voice. And it doesn't mean we're weird or freaky because we hear voices. It just simply means that there is something inside all of us that recognizes there is standards in this world that we feel like we have to compare and live up to. There's actually an answer to where that voice comes from in our heads found in the Bible. And I know that some of you may be here this morning for the first time in church, maybe ever, or the first time in church in a long time. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, the last place I think that I can find an answer to this question of where is this voice coming from, who is setting this standard, would be found in the Bible. Maybe in the past you've had a horrible church experience. And so you came today just because somebody invited you to come and you were doing them a favor and you said, yeah, I'll come along with you because you keep inviting me. But honestly, I'd rather not be here today because my last church experience wasn't a good one. I've had the exact same experience as you have if that's the story that you would tell. I remember when I was 19 years old, I had gotten involved while I was at university at a church which was incredibly controlling In fact, the leadership of the church was so controlling that they arranged all of the marriages of the young people in the church. That's how controlling it was. 
wasn't just a church. I would put it in the category of a cult. And so I finally got to the point in my Christian experience where I thought that all of Christianity was some sort of man-made religious system to try and keep the world from spinning out into chaos. That's the conclusion I'd come to. Because all the time I felt guilty, I felt the weight of these voices inside my head saying I wasn't measuring up spiritually enough, I wasn't measuring up in relationships enough. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, Jason, the last place I'm looking for the answer to that voice inside of my head that says I don't measure up, the last place I'm looking for an answer for that is the Bible or church or Christianity. I'm with you. I've been there. Because that's the last place I would have been looking for it when I was in university. But over time, I've discovered that Christianity actually answers this question of where does that standard come from? That voice that's inside all of us that knows that there's kind of a standard of life that we should be measuring up to, where does that thing come from? One of the writers of the New Testament, one of the first followers of Jesus in the first century, a guy named Paul, who had long time before he came to follow Jesus, was actually trying to stamp out Christianity. He spent most of his early years trying to get rid of this new spin-off of the Jewish religion called Christianity. He wrote a letter to a bunch of people, a bunch of churches, not just a church, but a group of churches in a part of the Roman Empire in the first century known as Galatia. And there were a number of churches all over this region known as Galatia. You can look it up online. You can look at Roman history. There's this area, which is now modern-day Turkey, which was known as Galatia. And there were a lot of churches in this area. And they had a major struggle. They had just started following Jesus. But because so many of them had been Jewish prior to following Jesus and becoming Christians, they were Jewish by not just ethnicity but also their religious background, Many of them were under the impression that in order to follow Jesus, you still had to keep all of the Jewish traditions. Here's the problem. There were a number of people that had begun to follow Jesus who weren't Jewish. And so the last thing they wanted to do was follow all of the Jewish traditions in order to follow Jesus. And so Paul writes a letter to this group of churches in this region of the world outlining for them the new freedom that you can find from all of the Jewish customs and traditions by following Jesus. In this letter that Paul wrote, he addresses this issue that's inside all of us that feels as though there's a standard that we have to live up to. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 4. He says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Essentially what Paul is saying is this. When the appointed time had come, when God was ready, when God was ready to send his son into the world, he sent his son Jesus into the world. He was born of a woman who was under the law, under a standard. And he was sent to redeem those who were also born under the law all of us. This law that Paul is referring to is the law of God, the standard that God has set for us. All of us that were born here in Australia, we were born under Australian law. There's a law that governs this land. There's a standard that we all have to live up to. There are certain things we can do. There are certain things we aren't allowed to do. 
When I was born, I was born here in Australia, but I was born to American parents. So I'm what they call a U.S. citizen born abroad. The day I was born, I was a dual citizen. I was actually born under two sets of laws, two standards that I have to live up to. All of us, we were born not just under the Australian law, we were born under God's law. No matter where you were born in the world, Paul is saying that all of us were born under God's standard. This idea that Paul is talking about, this is where all of us have this concept of what we should and shouldn't do. It's amazing to me, I've, I've talked with people all over the world, and even those that don't believe in God still have this thing inside of them of what you should and shouldn't do. You watch the news with someone, even somebody that doesn't believe in God or the Bible or Christianity, and they see some atrocity that's happening to a child, and there's something inside all of us that says that shouldn't happen. There's something inside all of us that when we see people, lives being taken and, and governments oppressing countries around the world, even genocides that are happening in this day and age as we live, there's something inside all of us that says that shouldn't happen. All of us have this concept inside of us that says there are certain things that should be done and there are certain things that shouldn't be done. Where does this concept come from? Paul would say to us, I'll tell you where it comes from. God has written onto every human's heart a standard. It's called the law of God. Paul's saying, at the appointed time, God sent his son. He was born of a woman under the law so that everyone under the law, under this standard of God, could be redeemed. See, all of us have something inside of us that knows that there should be things we do and there are things that we shouldn't do. And so we begin to look around because we're not sure what to do with this thing inside of us. We're not sure what to do when we know we don't measure up to a certain standard. We start to look around to see, is anybody else measuring up? We oftentimes will do this. We, we look around and we are all realize that we don't measure up to the standard. And so we start looking and seeing, well, is there somebody that doesn't measure up to the standard worse than I don't measure up? Well, I'm not doing as bad as that person is doing. Well, I'm doing better than that person is doing when it comes to living up to whatever standard it is in our lives. And then we all finally come to the agreement. Whether you're a church person or not a church person, I've heard people say this the world over. Well, at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. See, we all know that there's a standard. We all have this thing inside of our hearts that says we don't quite measure up. Paul is saying that's actually something that God has written into your heart. And so we begin to compare ourselves to how we're doing compared to other people and how well they're doing keeping up to the standard. And we just finally come to the conclusion, well, nobody's perfect. But deep down inside all of us, we know that something's wrong. Something's not right. We understand that, yeah, we can come up with the excuse, well, nobody's perfect, but at the end of the day, there's something broken with the system because none of us can measure up to God's standard. Here's what the Bible describes as the problem. There's a disconnection between the creator and creation. 
There's a broken relationship between the one that created us and those that he created. There's something that separates us. There's something messed up. There's something broken between us. And whether you're a Christian, a church person, a believer in God or not, deep down inside, I'm convinced all of us know there is something that's broken between the relationship of our creator and his creation. The Bible describes this thing that has broken the relationship. The Bible describes it as sin. Sin simply means this, not measuring up to God's standard. But we try to push it aside by just saying, well, at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. We all realize there's something that's broken. Paul goes on, he says that at the right time, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those that were under the law. See, God designed for us to be redeemed. He designed for this broken relationship between creator and creation to not stay broken, but to actually be restored. That's what redeemed simply means. It simply means this. When I look around and I realize that I don't measure up to God's standard, and I recognize over time that even though somebody else maybe is doing better than I am, or I'm doing better than somebody else as I compare myself with others, we all at the end of the day are still broken. God sent his son Jesus into the world to redeem us, to restore the relationship between creator and creation. But it gets even better than that. Paul goes on to describe not only did God send Jesus into the world to restore the relationship, it's better than that. Paul says to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to the sonship of God. Simply what Paul is saying, beyond just having our relationship restored, you actually get to be adopted into God's family when you receive this gift that God wants to give you. This idea that we can be a part of God's family is more than just having our relationship restored with God. It's actually being taken into God's family, which comes with so many benefits beyond just having a relationship restored with our Heavenly Father. Imagine God loving each of us so much that even though we don't measure up to his standard, he wants us to be a part of his family. Imagine a God that loves you that much. But there's this little word right before adoption that says that we might receive adoption to sonship. It's almost as if there's a caveat. See, God has done everything for us to be adopted into his family, but it doesn't guarantee the deal. It doesn't seal the deal. Although God wants to adopt you into his family, we have to accept what God wants for us in our lives, we have to accept the fact that he wants to adopt us. And so this morning, I want to break down for you, in the simplest way I possibly can, what it actually looks like to be adopted into God's family. I want to take you to probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Even if you're brand new to church, you've probably read this verse before. You've probably heard it before. Or you've seen it before. Here's the verse that I want us to take a look at. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but receive eternal life. When it comes to being adopted into God's family, the reason why Paul said that we might 
be adopted into the family of God is because there's actually something we participate in in order to be a part of God's family. When you break down this verse, there's really two things that God has done for us and there's two things that we do. Let me show these to you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Those are the two things that God does so that we can be a part of his family, that we might be adopted into his family. God's not gonna force it on you. He doesn't force it on me. He doesn't force it on you. He doesn't force it on anyone, but he has done everything so that we can be adopted into his family. But then the verse goes on and says that whoever believes in him will receive eternal life, will be adopted into God's family. So God loved and God gave. All we do in response is we believe and we receive. Now this word believe, I want to just clarify exactly what this word believe means. See, I believe that there's a stool up on the stage right now. I believe it with all my heart. I can see it. Everybody else in the room probably believes that there's a stool up on the stage right now. And I believe that that stool, although I do Pilates regularly, and I read the back of the labels on all of my Arnott's biscuits, I believe that that stool can hold up this mass. I'm convinced. I believe it. I believe there's a stool on the stage. I believe that even as heavy as I am, that stool can hold up my weight. This word believe actually goes beyond just thinking to yourself, I believe that there was a guy named Jesus that once lived. I believe that there was a guy back in the first century named Jesus who the Romans crucified on a cross. I believe that there was a guy named Jesus who rose again after being in the grave three days. That's a stretch. Even for me, that's a stretch. But I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead proving that he was the son of God. I can believe all those things. But this word believe has the idea of putting my belief into action. See, I believe that that stool is up on the stage. I believe that the stool can hold my weight. But do I really trust the stool to do it? The moment that I step up onto the stage and I put all of my weight onto the stool, still got a little bit of weight on my feet. In this moment, I put my belief into action. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not just to believe that he lived, that he died, and he rose again. But I put all my hope, all my trust, all my faith in him to forgive me of my sin. Not just believe about him, but I put all of my trust on him to forgive me of my sin and adopt me into his family. And then the great news is this. Once you believe, all you have to do is receive eternal life. It's the greatest gift on the planet. Paul goes on to describe when we're adopted into God's family, here's what God becomes to us. Because you are his sons, you've been adopted into his family, God sent the spirit of his son Jesus into our hearts, the spirit who calls out. And this is a quote from when Jesus was praying to his heavenly father, 
he says, Abba, Father. This word Abba, although the rest of this letter to the churches in Galatia was written in the language of Greek, this word Abba is actually written in a different language because the Greek language didn't have a word for what Jesus said to his father right before he was going to be crucified. As Jesus was praying to his father, he cries out to his heavenly father, hoping that he might be able to get out of being crucified and going through the pain of that incredibly horrible, horrific death. He cries out to his father and says, Abba, Father. The Aramaic language which this word Abba comes from is the same word that we have in our English language when your child calls you dad or daddy. Which I gotta be honest with you, when I think about talking to God and calling him dad or daddy, it feels so, so irreverent. But yet that's the type of relationship your heavenly father wants to have with you. Like a child that calls out, dad, daddy. Paul's saying, when you're adopted into the family of God, when you believe and you receive this gift of eternal life, your heavenly father brings you into his family and gives you the ability to call him dad. When I think of my dad, my dad is one of the greatest guys on the planet. Even just talking about my dad makes me get emotional. I'm so grateful for my father. I'm so glad that my dad has invested so much of his life into my life. Even now, while I'm here talking, I know my dad in this moment is actually praying for me this morning. And I know some of you haven't had an experience with a dad that was like that. Well, maybe you did have a good experience, but then it went bad. Or maybe you don't know your dad at all. But I want to ask you a question. Think about this for a moment. Thinking of the perfect dad... Who would a perfect dad compare his children to? Think about it for a second. Who would a perfect dad compare his children to? It's not a trick question. The answer is no one. A perfect dad would never compare his child to anybody. So let me ask you a follow-up question. Who does your heavenly father compare you to oh we compare ourselves to other people all the time we're trying to figure out do we measure up are we living up to the standard but your heavenly father who is the perfect dad the perfect heavenly father who does your perfect heavenly father compare you to no one because he's a perfect heavenly father and yet we live our lives constantly comparing ourselves to the people around us because we know deep down inside there's a standard that we should be living up to. And we're hoping that by comparing ourselves to other people that we might find out that nobody's perfect. And that's what God wants you to discover, that none of us live up to the standard. But that's why he sent his son Jesus to adopt us into his family. And Jesus has done all the work for us God so loved the world that he gave his son. He loved, and that's why he gave. All we have to do is believe and receive to be a part of God's family. I hope if you don't get anything else out of what we talked about this morning, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, whether you're a first time in church or you've been going to church your whole life,
I hope you walk out of here knowing that your heavenly father so badly loves you. He doesn't compare you with anybody else. And he's provided a way for you to be a part of his family. And he wants you to stop listening to the voice in the back of your head that compares you with other people. And rather, he wants you to listen for what's true about you from the one who made you, loved you, and redeemed you. Don't listen to the voice in the back of your head. Listen to your heavenly father's voice, the one that made you, he loves you, and he did everything to restore and redeem you back into a relationship with him. Paul says, when we begin to do that, no longer do we have to be a slave to this voice in the back of our head that says you don't measure up. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not wealthy enough. No longer do you have to be a slave to that voice. Paul goes on to say, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Not only do you get to have your relationship with your heavenly father restored, that's broken because none of us measure up. Not only do you get to be a part of God's family, he adopts you into his family, but because you're adopted into God's family, you are an heir to everything that God wants for you, including eternal life. But not just eternal life in the future, but an abundant life, the best life, not being a slave to the voice in the back of your head, but listening to your heavenly Father's voice to tell you what's true about you. That's what's on offer. And so this morning, I want us just to review. This is so important. I know it's simple, but it's so important for all of us in the room to understand what's on offer, what God, our heavenly Father, wants for us. He wants for us to be a part of his family. He loved. That's why he gave Jesus. And if you've never done it before, this morning, I want to give you an opportunity right now for you to believe and then to receive. It's super simple. It's not just believing that Jesus once existed, or that he died on a cross and that he rose again, but it's actually putting the full weight of all your hope, all your trust, and all your faith on the person of Jesus to forgive you of your sin. That's what believe looks like. And then receiving simply is just calling out to God and saying, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I know that I haven't measured up to your standard. Here's the deal. None of us even measure up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. Just admit, God, I haven't measured up. I'm like everybody else in the room. But I believe that Jesus died for me, rose again from the dead. And I'm calling out to you, God, to forgive me of my sin and adopt me into your family. That's what this looks like. So I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to pray in just a moment. I'd love it if everybody had their eyes closed and their head bowed. Nobody was looking around. We're going to pray in just a moment. But before I pray for you, there are some people I'm convinced in this room today that you are ready to say yes to Jesus and you are ready to receive what he wants for you in your life. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while. Maybe you haven't been to church in a while, but you're back 
and you're going, yes, Jason, I believe. Not that Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead as if it's some historical fact, but I actually believe that he did that for me. And today I want to receive the free gift of eternal life. With everyone's heads bowed, everyone's eyes closed. If you would say, Jason, you just described me. Then I want you, just you, to look up here straight at me. Nobody else in the room. Everybody else's heads bowed, eyes closed. But if you're here today and you'd say, Jason, I want to receive this eternal life that Jesus has on offer, I just want you to look directly at me right now. Here's what I want to invite you to do. If you're looking at me right now, I just simply want to lead you through a simple prayer where you call out to God and accept this free gift that he wants for you. So here's what you can say. You can use your own words. You can use my words if you want to. The words are not special. It's what you believe in your heart that really makes all the difference. So here's what I want to invite you to do. Just pray, God, God, you can say it out loud. You can say it quietly under your breath, in your heart, in your mind. You can just say, God, I know I don't measure up. I know I don't. I don't meet my own standards, let alone your standards, God. Just tell him, God, I know I don't measure up. But then say to him, I believe that Jesus died for me. Just tell God, I believe Jesus died for me. I don't measure up, but I believe that Jesus died for me to pay for my sins. And then just tell God, just tell him right now, I receive your gift of eternal life. I believe that Jesus died for me and I wanna receive that gift of eternal life and be adopted into your family. With everyone's heads bowed, nobody's looking around. This is just between you and God. If you prayed that prayer this morning, if you said that as you prayed along with me, would you do me a favor? Would you just lift your hand up really quick and put your hand down just so I can acknowledge that that's you this morning. Okay, we got one over here, a couple of people over here couple of people in the middle. Thank you. Father, I pray for each person this morning that has come to the realization that they don't measure up to your standard. Like so many of us in the room, we all know that. We don't measure up to our own standards, God. God, I thank you for those that this morning have said yes to Jesus. They've put all their hope all their trust in you, not in themselves to try to measure up, but in what you did for them on the cross. God, I thank you. God, I thank you that many this morning have called out to you to receive this free gift of eternal life and to be adopted into your family. I pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you do me a favor? Would you celebrate with me those that made that decision this morning? Yeah. Right after the service, in just a moment, we're going to take communion, and then we're going to be dismissed. If you prayed that prayer this morning, if you made that decision, you said yes to Jesus, you received what he has for you, I would love it if you'd do me a favor. I'm going to be hanging out at the deck. When you exit here, you take a right. It's going to be several of us hanging out there. We're going to be talking about Alpha that starts in a couple of weeks from now. 
but I would love to just celebrate with you the decision that you made today of trusting Jesus. So in the moment, the ushers are gonna come and we're gonna take a piece of bread, just like this one. We're gonna take a cup, just like this one. And this is simply a symbol of what we talked about this morning. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us when he died on the cross for us and his blood that was shed for us on the cross. These are a symbol that remind us afresh every time we take them of the simple truths that we talked about today. That there's a God in heaven who loves us so much that despite the fact that we don't measure up, he still sent his son to this world. That's what these things do every time we take them. It reminds us that God loved us so much he gave his son. And when we receive them, when we take the bread, and when we drink the juice, it's a reminder that all we have to do is believe and receive what he did for us, like many of you did this morning. So let me pray for us as we take communion, and then we're going to be reminded together. Let's do this. Father, I pray for the bread and the cup this morning. I pray that they would be a powerful reminder for those of us that have been following you for a long time, some that decided to follow you today, God, I pray that we'd all be reminded that you love us, you gave your son for us. All we need to do is believe and receive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.